Part twenty five of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume One, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part twenty five. William Andrew Horne, Esquire, executed for murder. The short notice which we give of this man exhibits a human being reduced far below the level of a beast. The subject of the memoir was the eldest son of a gentleman of fortune in Nottinghamshire, who in vain strove to instil into the mind of his son any of those principles of rectitude without which a man cannot be considered to be humanised. The sports of the field, and all the dissipation which a country squire could at that time obtain, formed the amusements of this reckless youth. His passion for women was unbounded, but his love of gold surpassed all the other bad qualities which so peculiarly distinguished him. It was while his father yet lived that he committed that crime for which his life was eventually forfeited, and it appears to have occurred in the following manner. His passion for women led him to commit the most disgusting excesses, and at length so far he had carried his crimes that an incestuous connection took place between him and his sister, the result of which was the birth of a boy in the month of February 1724. Horne told his brother Charles of the circumstance three days afterwards, and at ten o'clock at night said that he must take a ride with him. He then put the newborn infant in a bag, and, mounting their horses, they rode to Annesley in Nottinghamshire, at the distance of five miles, carrying the child alternately. On their arrival near the village, William dismounted and inquired if the child was living, and, being answered in the affirmative, he took it and told his brother to wait till he came back. On his return, Charles demanded to know how he had disposed of the infant, to which he said he had placed it behind a haystack and covered it with hay. They then returned home, and it was afterwards learned that the child died in the course of the night from exposure to the cold. But in a short time afterwards a quarrel arising between the brothers, the whole transaction was communicated by Charles to his father. The latter enjoined him to the strictest secrecy, and this injunction was obeyed up to the time of the old man's death, which occurred in the year 1747, in the one hundred and second year of his age. The real estate of the family being entailed, then descended to the eldest son, but the father had previously made over his personal property, by deed of gift, to his son Charles. No sooner had the new squire assumed the government of the estate, than he behaved with the utmost severity towards his brother, as well as his tenants, and at length the former, rendered miserable by his participation in the horrid act, having some business to transact with Mr. Cook, an attorney at Derby, told him of the long-concealed affair, and asked for his advice. The lawyer told him to go to a justice of the peace, and make a full discovery of the whole transaction, and he accordingly went to a magistrate, and acquainted him with what had happened. He hesitated to take cognizance of the matter, however saying that it might hang half the family, and, as it had passed so many years ago, advised that it might remain a secret. No further notice of the circumstance was then taken until the year 1754, when Charles, being suddenly seized with a severe fit of illness, called in a Mr. White of Ripley, to whom, in anticipation of his death, he disclosed all that had occurred. Mr. White declined to interfere, but his patient almost immediately recovered, declaring that, he had been better ever since the weight of the transaction had been taken off his mind by his making the disclosure. The discovery, however, soon became a matter of notoriety, and William Horne, having quarrelled with a publican named Rowe, the latter called him an incestuous old dog, 
A suit in the ecclesiastical court at Lichfield was the consequence, and Rowe, being unsuccessful, was ordered to pay all the costs. The circumstance inflamed him with revenge, and having made such inquiries as persuaded him of the truth of the report which he had heard, he procured a warrant to be issued for the apprehension of his late opponent. A constable of Annesley, and he in consequence proceeded to the house of the squire at about eight o'clock in the evening, and after having experienced considerable difficulty, succeeded in obtaining admittance. A strict search was then commenced, but it was not until a long time had elapsed that they discovered the object of their inquiry concealed in a large box, which had been described as containing clean linen. He was immediately carried before two justices, who committed him to take his trial at the following assizes. On the 10th of August, 1759, he was brought to trial before Lord Chief Baron Parker, and after a hearing of about nine hours, the jury found him guilty, and sentence of death passed, of course. Horne, being convicted on a Saturday, was sentenced to die on the Monday following, but a number of gentlemen waited on the judge, intimating that he had been so long hardened in iniquity that a farther time would be necessary to prepare him for his awful change, and a respite of a month was in consequence granted. When this time was nearly expired, he received a reprieve during His Majesty's pleasure, so that he began to entertain hopes of obtaining a free pardon, and he employed a considerable part of his time in writing to his friends, to make interest to secure this object. He, however, confessed the justice of his conviction, but seemed little affected by the enormity of his crime, and frequently said, "'It was damned hard to suffer on the evidence of a brother for a crime committed so many years before.' He gave the following account of the transaction. He said he had no design of destroying the infant, but put it in a bag lined with wool, and made a hole in the bag, that it might not be stifled. He added that the child was handsomely dressed, and he had intended to have left it at the door of Mr. Charworth, of Annesley. But the dogs barking, and there being a light in the house, he desisted from his first intention in the fear of a discovery. After some hesitation, he said, he resolved to place it under a warm haystack, in the hope that, when the servants came to fodder the cattle in the morning, it would be found. He acknowledged to a clergyman who assisted him in his devotions that he forgave all his enemies, even his brother Charles, but made the following strange addition to his speech, that, if at the day of judgment God Almighty should ask him how his brother behaved, he would not give him a good character. The hopes of a pardon which he had entertained soon proved unfounded, and an order arrived for his execution on the 11th of December, 1759, on which day he completed his seventy-fourth year, and terminated his life on a scaffold erected at Nottingham. Lawrence Earl Ferrers, executed for murder. Lawrence Earl Ferrers was a man of singular and most unhappy disposition. Descended of an ancient and noble family, he was doomed to expiate a crime of which he had been guilty at Tyburn. It would appear that the royal blood of the Plantagenets flowed in his veins, and the Earl gained his title in the following manner. The second baronet of the family, Sir Henry Shirley, married a daughter of the celebrated Earl of Essex, who was beheaded in the reign of Queen Elizabeth, and his son, Sir Robert Shirley, died in the Tower, where he was confined during the Protectorate, for his attachment to the cause of the Stuarts. Upon the restoration, the second son of Sir Robert succeeded to the title and estates, and Charles, anxious to cement the bonds which attached his friends to him, summoned him to the Upper House of Parliament by the title of Lord Ferrers of Chartley, as the descendant of one of the co-heiresses of the Earl of Essex. The title, which had existed since the reign of Edward 
the third having been in abeyance since the death of that unfortunate nobleman. In the year 1711, Robert, Lord Ferrers, was created by Queen Anne, Viscount Tamworth, and Earl Ferrers, and it appears that, although the estates of the family were very great, they were vastly diminished by the provisions which the Earl thought proper to make for his numerous progeny, consisting of fifteen sons and twelve daughters, born to him by his two wives. At the death of the first Earl, his title descended to his second son, but he, dying without issue, it went in succession to the ninth son, who was childless, and the tenth son, who was the father of the Earl Lawrence, the subject of the present sketch. This nobleman was united in the year 1752 to the youngest daughter of Sir William Meredith, but although his general conduct when sober was not such as to be remarkable, yet his faculties were so much impaired by drink that when under the influence of intoxication he acted with all the wildness and brutality of a madman. For a time his wife perceived nothing which induced her to repent the step she had taken in being united to him, but he subsequently behaved to her with such unwarrantable cruelty that she was compelled to quit his protection, and rejoining her father's family to apply to Parliament for redress. An act was in consequence passed, allowing her a separate maintenance to be raised out of her husband's estate, and trustees being appointed, the unfortunate Mr. Johnson, who fell a sacrifice to the ungovernable passions of Lord Ferrers, having been bred up in the family from his youth, and being distinguished for the regular manner in which he kept his accounts, and his fidelity as a steward, was proposed as receiver of the rents for her use. He at first declined the office, but subsequently at the desire of the Earl himself, he consented to act, and continued in this employment for a considerable time. His lordship at this time lived at Stanton, a seat about two miles from Ashby de la Zouche in Leicestershire, and his family consisted of Mrs. Clifford, a lady who lived with him and her four natural daughters, besides five men-servants, exclusive of an old man and a boy, and three maids. Mr. Johnson lived at the house belonging to the farm, which he held under his lordship, called the Lount, about half a mile distant from Stanton. It appears that it was his custom to visit his noble master occasionally, to settle the accounts which were placed under his care, but his lordship gradually conceived a dislike for him, grounded upon the prejudice raised in his mind on account of his being the receiver of the Countess's portion, and charged him with having combined with the trustees to prevent his receiving a coal contract. From this time he spoke of him in opprobrious terms, and said he had conspired with his enemies to injure him, and that he was a villain, and with these sentiments he gave him warning to quit an advantageous farm which he held under his lordship. Finding, however, that the trustees under the act of separation had already granted him a lease of it, it having been promised to him by the Earl or his relations, he was disappointed, and probably from that time he meditated a more cruel revenge. The circumstances immediately attending the transaction which terminated in the death of Johnson are as follows. On Sunday the 13th of January 1760, my lord went to the Lount, and after some discourse with Mr. Johnson, ordered him to come to him at Stanton on the Friday following, the 18th, at three o'clock in the afternoon. His lordship's usual dinner hour was two o'clock, and soon after that meal was disposed of, on the Friday he went to Mrs. Clifford, who was in the still-house, and desired her to take the children for a walk. She accordingly prepared herself and her daughters, and with the permission of the Earl went to her father's at a short distance, being directed to return at half-past five. The men-servants were next dispatched on errands by their master, who was thus left in the house with the three females only. 
In a short time afterwards Mr. Johnson came according to his appointment, and was admitted by one of the maid-servants, named Elizabeth Bergland. He proceeded at once to his lordship's apartment, but was desired to wait in the still-house, and then, after the expiration of about ten minutes, the earl, calling him into his own room, went in with him and locked the door. Being thus together, the earl required him first to settle an account, and then charging him with the villainy which he attributed to him, ordered him to kneel down. The unfortunate man went down on one knee, upon which the earl, in a tone of voice loud enough to be heard by the maid-servants, without, cried, "'Down on your other knee! Declare that you have acted against Lord Ferrers! Your time is come! You must die!' And then suddenly drawing a pistol from his pocket, which was loaded, he presented it, and immediately fired. The ball entered the body of the unfortunate man, but he rose up, and entreated that no farther violence might be done him, and the female servants at that time, coming to the door, being alarmed by the report, his lordship quitted the room. A messenger was immediately dispatched for Mr. Kirkland, a surgeon, who lived at Ashby de la Zouche, and Johnson being put to bed, his lordship went to him and asked him how he felt. He answered that he was dying, and desired that his family might be sent for. Miss Johnson soon after arrived, and Lord Ferrers immediately followed her into the room where her father lay. He then pulled down the clothes, and applied a pledget, dipped in arquebusade water, to the wound, and soon after left him. From this time it appears that his lordship applied himself to his favourite amusement, drinking, until he became exceedingly violent, for at the time of the commission of the murder he is reported to have been sober, and on the arrival of Mr. Kirkland he told him that he had shot Johnson, but believed he was more frightened than hurt, that he had intended to shoot him dead, for that he was a villain and deserved to die. But, said he, now I have spared his life, I desire you would do what you can for him. His lordship at the same time desired that he would not suffer him to be seized, and declared that, if any one should attempt it, he would shoot him. Mr. Kirkland, who wisely determined to say, whatever might keep Lord Ferrers from any further outrages, told him that he should not be seized, and directly went to the wounded man. The patient complained of a violent pain in his bowels, and Mr. Kirkland, preparing to search the wound, my lord informed him of the direction of it, by showing him how he held the pistol when he fired it. Mr. Kirkland found the ball had lodged in the body, at which his lordship expressed great surprise, declaring that he had tried that pistol a few days before, and that it then carried a ball through a deal board near an inch and a half thick. Mr. Kirkland then went downstairs to prepare some dressings, and my lord soon after left the room. From this time, in proportion, as the liquor which he continued to drink took effect, his passions became more tumultuous, and the transient fit of compassion, mixed with fear for himself, which had excited him, gave way to starts of rage and the predominance of malice. He went up into the room where Johnson was dying, and pulled him by the wig, calling him villain, and threatening to shoot him through the head, and the last time he went to him, he was with great difficulty prevented from tearing the clothes off the bed, that he might strike him. A proposal was made to him in the evening by Mrs. Clifford, that Mr. Johnson should be removed to his own house, but he replied, "'He shall not be removed. I will keep him here to plague the villain.' He afterwards spoke to Miss Johnson about her father, and told her that if he died he would take care of her and of the family, provided they did not prosecute. When his lordship went to bed, which was between eleven and twelve, he told Mr. Kirkland that he knew he could, if he would, set the affair in such a light as to prevent his being seized, desiring that he might see him before he went away in the morning, and declaring that he would rise at any hour. Mr. Kirkland, however, was very solicitous to get Mr. Johnson removed. 
and as soon as the earl was gone he set about carrying his object into effect. He, in consequence, went to Lount, and having fitted up an easy chair with poles by way of a sedan, and procured a guard, he returned at about two o'clock and carried Mr. Johnson to his house, where he expired at about nine o'clock of the following morning. The neighbours now began to take measures to secure the murderer, and a few of them, having armed themselves, set out for Stanton, and as they entered the yard they saw his lordship partly undressed, going towards the stable, as if to take out a horse. One of them, named Springthorpe, then advancing towards his lordship with a pistol in his hand, required him to surrender, but the latter putting his hand towards his pocket, his assailant, imagining that he was feeling for some weapon of offence, stopped short and allowed him to escape into the house. A great concourse of people by this time had come to the spot, and they cried out loudly that the earl should come forth. Two hours elapsed, however, before anything was seen of him, and then he came to the garret window and called out, "'How is Johnson?' He was answered that he was dead, but he said it was a lie, and desired that the people should disperse. But then he gave orders that they should be let in, and be furnished with victuals and drink, and finally he went away from the window, swearing that no man should take him. The mob still remained on the spot, and in about two hours the earl was descried by a collier named Curtis, walking on the bowling-green, armed with a blunderbuss, a brace of pistols, and a dagger. Curtis, however, so far from being intimidated by his bold appearance, walked up to him, and his lordship, struck with the resolution he displayed, immediately surrendered himself, and gave up his arms, but directly afterwards declared that he had killed the villain, and gloried in the act. He was instantly conveyed in custody to a public-house at Ashby, kept by a man named Kinsey, and a coroner's jury having brought in a verdict of willful murder against him, he was on the following Monday committed to the custody of the keeper of the jail at Leicester. Being entitled, however, by his rank to be tried before his peers, he was in about a fortnight afterwards conveyed to London, in his Landau, drawn by six horses, under a strong guard, and being carried before the House of Lords he was committed to the custody of the Black Rod, and ordered to the Tower, where he arrived at about six o'clock in the evening of the 14th of February. He is reported to have behaved during the whole journey, and, at his commitment, with great calmness and propriety. He was confined in the Round Tower, near the drawbridge. Two wardens were constantly in the room with him, and one at the door. Two sentinels were posted at the bottom of the stairs, and one upon the drawbridge, with their bayonets fixed, and from this time the gates were ordered to be shut an hour sooner than usual. During his confinement he was moderate both in eating and drinking. His breakfast was a half-pint basin of tea, with a small spoonful of brandy in it, and a muffin. With his dinner he generally drank a pint of wine and a pint of water, and another pint of each with his supper. In general his behaviour was decent and quiet, except that he would sometimes suddenly start, tear open his waistcoat, and use other gestures, which showed that his mind was disturbed. Mrs. Clifford and the four young ladies, who had come up with him from Leicestershire, took a lodging in Tower Street, and for some time a servant was continually passing with letters between them, but afterwards this correspondence was permitted only once a day. Mrs. Clifford came three times to the Tower to see him, but was not admitted, but his children were suffered to be with him some time. On the 16th of April, having been a prisoner in the Tower two months and two days, he was brought to his trial, which continued till the 18th, before the House of Lords, assembled for that purpose, Lord Henley, Keeper of the Great Seal, having been created Lord High Steward upon the occasion. The murder was easily proved to have been committed in the manner we have described, and his lordship then proceeded to enter upon his defence. He called several witnesses, the object of whose testimony was to show that the Earl was not of sound mind, 
but none of them proved such an insanity as made him not accountable for his conduct. His lordship managed this defence himself, in such a manner as showed an uncommon understanding. He mentioned the fact of his being reduced to the necessity of attempting to prove himself a lunatic, that he might not be deemed a murderer, with the most delicate and affecting sensibility. And when he found that his plea could not avail him, he confessed that he made it only to gratify his friends, that he was always averse to it himself, and that it had prevented what he had proposed, and what perhaps might have taken off the malignity, at least of the accusation. The peers, having in the usual form delivered their verdict of guilty, his lordship received sentence to be hanged on Monday 21st of April, and then to be anatomized. But in consideration of his rank the execution of this sentence was respited till Monday the 5th of May. During this interval he made a will, by which he left £1,300 to Mr. Johnson's children, £1,000 to each of his four natural daughters, and £60 a year to Mrs. Clifford for her life. But this disposition of his property, being made after his conviction, was not valid. Although it was said at that time, or nearly the same provision was afterwards made for the parties named. In the meantime a scaffold was erected under the gallows at Tyburn, and part of it, about a yard square, was raised about eighteen inches above the rest of the floor, with a contrivance to sink down upon a signal given, in accordance with the plan now invariably adopted, the whole being covered with black bays. On the morning of the 5th of May, at about nine o'clock, his lordship's body was demanded of the keeper of the tower by the sheriffs of London and Middlesex, and his lordship, being informed of it, sent a message to the sheriffs, requesting that he might be permitted to be conveyed to the scaffold in his own landau, in preference to the mourning coach which was provided for him. This being granted, his landau, drawn by six horses, immediately drew up, and he entered it accompanied by Mr. Humphreys, the chaplain of the tower, who had been admitted to him on that morning for the first time. On the carriage reaching the outer gate, the earl was delivered up to the sheriffs, and Mr. Sheriff Valent entered the vehicle with him, expressing his concern at having so melancholy a duty to perform, but his lordship said that he was much obliged to him, and took it kindly that he accompanied him. The earl was attired in a white suit, richly embroidered with silver, and when he put it on said, This is the suit in which I was married, and in which I will die. The procession being now formed, moved forward slowly, the landau being preceded by a considerable body of horse-grenadiers, and by a carriage containing Mr. Sheriff Errington, and his under-sheriff Mr. Jackson, and being followed by the carriage of Mr. Sheriff Valent, containing Mr. Nichols, his under-sheriff, a morning-coach and six, containing some of his lordship's friends, a hearse and six for the conveyance of his body to the surgeon's hall after execution, and another body of military. The pace at which they proceeded, in consequence of the density of the mob, was so slow that his lordship was two hours and three quarters in his landau, but during that time he appeared perfectly easy and composed, though he often expressed his anxiety to have the whole affair over, saying that the apparatus of death and the passing through such crowds were worse than death itself, and that he supposed so large a mob had been collected because the people had never seen a lord hanged before. He told the sheriff that he had written to the king to beg that he might suffer where his ancestor, the Earl of Essex, had been executed, and that he was in the greater hopes of obtaining that favour, as he had the honour of quartering part of the same arms, and of being allied to his majesty but that he had refused, and thought it hard that he must die at the place appointed for the execution of common felons. 
Mr. Humphreys took occasion to observe that the world would naturally be very inquisitive concerning the religion his lordship professed, and asked him if he chose to say anything upon that subject, and his lordship answered that he did not think himself accountable to the world for his sentiments on religion, but that he had always believed in and adored one God, the Maker of all things, that whatever his notions were, he had never propagated them, or endeavoured to gain any persons over to his persuasion, that all countries and nations had a form of religion by which the people were governed, and that he looked upon any one who disturbed them in it as an enemy to society, that he blamed very much my Lord Bolingbroke for permitting his sentiments on religion to be published to the world, that he never could believe what some sectaries teach, that faith alone will save mankind, so that if a man just before he dies should say only, I believe, that alone will save him. As to the crime for which he suffered, he declared that he was under particular circumstances, that he had met with so many crosses and vexations he scarce knew what he did, and he most solemnly protested that he had not the least malice against Mr. Johnson. When his lordship had got to that part of Holborn, which is near Drury Lane, he said, he was thirsty, and should be glad of a glass of wine and water, upon which the sheriffs remonstrating to him, that a stop for that purpose would necessarily draw a greater crowd about him, which might possibly disturb and incommode him, yet if his lordship still desired it, it should be done. He most readily answered, That's true, I say no more, let us by no means stop. When they approached near the place of execution, his lordship, pointing to Mrs. Clifford, told the sheriff that there was a person waiting in a coach near there, for whom he had a very sincere regard, and of whom he should be glad to take his leave before he died. The sheriff answered that, if his lordship insisted upon it, it should be so, but that he wished his lordship for his own sake would decline it, lest the sight of a person for whom he had such a regard should unman him and disarm him of the fortitude he possessed. His lordship, without the least hesitation, replied, Sir, if you think I am wrong, I submit, and upon the sheriff telling his lordship that if he had anything to deliver to the individual referred to, or any one else, he would faithfully do it, his lordship delivered to him a pocket-book, in which were a bank-note and a ring, and a purse with some guineas, which were afterwards handed over to the unhappy woman. The Landau now being advanced to the place of execution, his lordship alighted from it, and ascended the scaffold with the same composure and fortitude of mind he had exhibited from the time he left the tower. Soon after he had mounted the scaffold, Mr. Humphreys asked his lordship if he chose to say prayers, which he declined, but, upon his asking him if he did not choose to join him in the Lord's Prayer, he readily answered he would, for he always thought it a very fine prayer, upon which they knelt down together upon two cushions, covered with black bays, and his lordship, with an audible voice, very devoutly repeated the Lord's Prayer, and afterwards with great energy ejaculated, O oh God, forgive me all my errors, pardon all my sins. His lordship then rising took his leave of the sheriff and the chaplain, and after thanking them for their many civilities, presented his watch to Mr. Sheriff Valent, of which he desired his acceptance, and requested that his body might be buried at Breeden or Stanton in Leicestershire. The executioner now proceeded to do his duty, to which his lordship with great resignation submitted. His neckcloth being taken off, a white cap, which he had bought in his pocket being put upon his head, his arms secured by a black sash, and the cord put around his neck, he advanced by three steps to the elevated part of the scaffold, and standing under the cross-beam which went over it, 
which was also covered with black baize, he asked the executioner, Am I right? Then the cap was drawn over his face, and upon a signal given by the sheriff, for his lordship, upon being before asked, declined to give one himself, that part upon which he stood instantly sunk down from beneath his feet, and he was launched into eternity, May the 5th, 1760. From the time of his lordship's ascending upon the scaffold until his execution was about eight minutes, during which his countenance did not change nor his tongue falter. The accustomed time of one hour being passed, the coffin was raised up with the greatest decency to receive the body, and being deposited in the hearse was conveyed by the sheriffs with the same procession to Surgeon's Hall to undergo the remainder of the sentence. A large incision was then made from the neck to the bottom of the breast, and another across the throat. The lower part of the belly was laid open, and the bowels taken away. It was afterwards publicly exposed to view in a room up one pair of stairs at the hall, and on the evening of Thursday, the 8th of May, it was delivered to his friends for interment. The following verse is said to have been found in his apartment. In doubt I lived, in doubt I die, yet stand prepared the vast abyss to try, and undismayed expect eternity. End of part 25